It's National Podcast Post Month, Day 7. We are one full week into Napod Pomo. Hello, everybody. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. And we got another one here for the pro wrestling fans. Everybody's heard of WrestleMania. Well, now you're going to hear the story of how the original WrestleMania from 1985 came to be. We go over a lot in that episode, so I'm going to keep this intro short. But if you ever wondered what Vince McMahon went through to create the original WrestleMania, this is definitely the show for you. So without further ado, let's jump in the Wayback Machine. This is from Classic Wrestling Memories, Volume 32. And it's called The Original WrestleMania and the Rock and Wrestling Connection that led up to it. Welcome once again, wrestling fans. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, where we talk about a lot of the old school yesteryear moments of wrestling. This episode I've been meaning to do for a while here, and if you've listened to our very first episode about Starcade 1983, you're going to hear a lot of similar names as far as who the players are. We are talking WrestleMania, the very first WrestleMania from 1985, and not only that, we're going to talk about some of the build-up to it and what made WrestleMania what it is today. Unfortunately, I don't have to do it alone. Joining me again from the nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Like Seth said, this is an episode we've been wanting to do for a while. We just had other things come up. You know, unfortunately, some of those have been tributes to uh, our fallen brothers and sisters that have gone to the big battle royal in the sky. But we are getting around to it, and I do think this will probably serve as a fairly nice companion piece of that original episode to kind of compare and contrast the the two premier freshman entries into both rival companies' foray into the big mega show slash pay-per-view market. Exactly, yes. Because WrestleMania, I mean, not only is it a staple of world wrestling entertainment, but it's kind of become a fixture of pop culture itself. And the interesting thing that if you're a younger fan, and when I say younger, I say you know maybe under the age of 30 or so. Obviously, WrestleMania, I think this year was was 35 or 36, mm-hmm. and you know 1985, 35 years ago, literally. So uh, there's entire generations now that have grown up not knowing what it was like to have these big mega shows. So the way I kind of equate it to myself is football without the Super Bowl or something like that. But the funny thing about WrestleMania is it was in 85, whereas the Jim Crockett Promotions, they had Starcade 83 in November of 83 and then Starcade 84 in November of 84. So Vince, in a way, is almost kind of behind the curve here. I think the difference, though, and you'd know better than I would train, so I'll give you the floor for this, but mm-hmm. I don't know how much Crockett and those other territories, because Starcade was essentially a culmination of several different territories on, on one show. Right. I don't think they necessarily had the national expansion in mind that Vince was doing in 84. I mean, is it fair to say that? I don't think in 83 or 84. I think it was just an idea of big show. We go over that in the in the first Starcade 
that there was this long history in the Crockett promotions and in Greensboro specifically at the auditorium there for Thanksgiving night big shows. I think the idea of having a mega show was, you know, this is often erroneously reported by other historians and YouTube and other people that Dusty was the creative genius behind Starcade. He came up with a name, but the first Starcade, and I think we brought this up on episode one, was actually booked by Dory Jr. Mm -hmm. Dusty was in uh, talks with the Crockett's to come in as their booker at the time. And that was kind of always, you know, I think one of the strengths of the dream was his seeing the big picture. I think we said before in, the, in that episode, really, the original Starcade, Dusty only cut promos, but right, it was right. placing those seeds of doing Flair versus Dusty the next year in 84. Right, which was the, which was the main event in 84, exactly. And then you also have to realize that the first two Starcades, actually the first, I want to say four, maybe? So 83, 80, 45, and 86, none of those were pay-per-view. Pay-per-view right. had not really become a thing yet, but they were closed circuit. And right. the way closed circuit worked was, and we'll get to this when we talk about the WrestleMania one, there was also closed circuiting with that show too. Which mm-hmm. closed circuiting, for those that aren't familiar, was where you could, satellite time is, even to this day, is very expensive. But back then was extremely expensive. And the idea of having a box in your home that could unscramble the signal from a, a satellite was unheard of and it required actually having not a little small satellite dish like we see today but a big satellite dish at your house nobody had that so what you could do and it, this wasn't the first star k83 wasn't the first wrestlemania wasn't the first first wrestling was probably the, the ali Inoki uh match in the 70s but there have been other sporting events that have been closed circuited but what it involved was a having a mobile truck with a satellite on it or a building that had a satellite, usually movie theaters or other smaller arenas where some of the regular house shows would be run in these mm-hmm. markets, selling tickets at a reduced price from what the people that were at the show live would pay, obviously. But you bought your ticket. I, I saw some Starcades closed circuited. And you would go to the building, purchase a ticket, order, and then you would sit and they would have a big movie screen there and they would satellite feed it into the building and you would see it live on a big screen. That was the technological miracle of the time. And when you're talking the first two to four uh, Starcades and the first WrestleMania, that's more of the technology they're dealing with. But it was laying the groundwork for what would become pay-per-view. I think everybody thinks, well, pay-per-view. Well, no, Starcade 83 wasn't pay-per-view. And WrestleMania, I don't believe, was pay-per-view either, was it? It was still just closed circuit, wasn't it? Right, right. WrestleMania 2 was the first pay-per-view he did. I believe that was the first the, the first pay-per-view, yeah. So, I mean, the the way I describe it, you know, you talk about these radar dishes, and no, we're not talking about what you get with, with DirecTV. I mean, no, these no, no, things no. Were, were huge. I mean, I, I would make the analogy even as a kid because, you know, that's my generation. It's like it almost looked like a Death Star dish, you know, like you're just going to see this yes. big green blast shoot off into yeah. the sky. That's how yeah. big these things were. And when, when, when me and Seth are growing up, if you had a sat, I mean, and I knew people that had them, mm-hmm. they were expensive. They were, you mm-hmm. had to be well off to own this. And, right. and you we're had talking many all- thousands of dollars in 1985. <laughs> and that was just for the, just for the hardware. Then there was software involved. You had to have a box in your home that was able to unscramble the feed that your satellite dish was receiving. But it does make one wonder why some of the conspiracy theorists out there think the NSA is out to read all our mail. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> maybe that was laying the groundwork. I don't know. Get your get your foil hats, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but to set the stage, we've talked about the territories before. Vince McMahon began his national expansion for the then World Wrestling Federation in 1984. And he spent the better part of the year of 1984 assembling an all-star roster from several of the competing territories. The biggest acquisition, of course, the one that was going to be his key player at all of that was Hulk Hogan. Right. We could do an entire story just on Hogan and the AWA, but Hogan had already established himself as an international star in Vern Gagne's AWA, and he was also doing shows for Inoki in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And, mm-hmm. of course, he had that memorable role as Thunderlips in Rocky Three. So all the boxes that Vince would be looking to check, Hogan had. He was no longer Sterling Golden or anything like that. He was Terry, Terry <laughs> Balea or anything, or Terry right. Boulder. Right. <laughs> He'd probably already known Hogan because of the stints that Hogan had working for, for Vince Sr. Mm-hmm. And so he has him as his top superhero and then other talent acquired during that year and it's I'm, I'm probably missing a few but from jim crockett promotions there's roddy piper greg valentine ricky steamboat i think i think bob orton came from yes he did sergeant slaughter nick slater yeah he, I, crockett wasn't the hardest hit of the territories i don't think but they were one of the more heavily rated i think i mean hulk hogan notwithstanding awa probably got hit harder than any of the other territories because that's also where gene oakland came from Right, Gene Oakland came from there, and and the, and the Killer Bees, and uh, trying to think who else came from there. I can't remember. Bobby Heenan, actually, yeah, and that that wasn't until I think eighty five, but but yeah, Bobby right. Heenan came. But from it's there. all in this it's all in this like six to twelve month period we're talking about. He's cherry picking the, the territories for their top guys. I mean, like you got Jimmy Hart from Memphis, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's raiding Canada. This is the early days of Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart. As we record this here in late May, the year of our Lord, twenty twenty. Recently, there have been episodes of Vice's Dark Side of the Ring about Dr. D. David Schultz slapping Stossel and the death of Dino Bravo. There's some other guys that are from other territories. He's getting around this time period, you know? Right. He's going up into Montreal and getting Dino Bravo and the Rougeaus. David was brought in, and it's brought up pretty well in the documentary that Vice does. He was brought in because he was buddies with Hogan and it had a program with Hogan here in the South in the Alabama Territory. And it was Hogan's idea to bring him in because he, he was a guy that you could believe could challenge Hogan. David Schultz in his heyday was what, about 6'4", 270, just ripped yeah. and could cut yeah, a promo? I, 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 I don't know in-ring ability as well as you do, but just for like a, a similar size type thing, I'd say maybe like Roman Reigns, you know? Oh, yeah. 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and thick. And, and I, I actually praise Hogan more than I rip on him for his in-ring ability, much more so than the average fan. David Schultz was an extremely talented athlete for his size. Iron Sheik was another guy he got around this time. Sheik had hopped around, but he'd, been, he'd had a run here in the Carolinas, too. Mm-hmm. Snuka had been there for a little while, but Snuka had left New York and come down here to the Carolinas, and Orndorff had left and come down to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Got both, you know, and, and they were back up in New York. So there was a lot of talent. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, because uh, I always like to say, he was the first wrestler aside from Hogan that I thought this guy's cool. Junkyard Dog he got from Mid South, and yep, then yep. and then uh, from Florida I think is where he got Barry Windham and Mike Rotunda. Sure was, and, and of course they were not on WrestleMania, and they really were only in the company for a cup of coffee. But the Freebirds around mm-hmm. that time, which will when we get to 
we talk about the rock and wrestling connection, they were part of why he brought the Freebirds in. And they, of course, had successful runs in, in, in Georgia and in AWA. And so, yeah, he was, he was getting talent from everywhere. And you have to think, make it doubly hard for Vern Gagne. He loses all these guys to Vince McMahon. Oh, yeah, and at the same time, he loses the Road Warriors to the Crockett's. That, that's a lot of talent to leave at one time. And you're losing to not one, but two companies. Yeah, and, and it would not have surprised me if the Crockett's didn't take the Road Warriors, Vince would have at that time. Sure. There's been another recent episode of Vice's Dark Side of the Ring was about the Road Warriors. They were offered. They just chose to not do that. And and I can tell you as a fan down here in this time, it wasn't really till like 86. So we're talking about a year after the first WrestleMania that the Road Warriors became pretty much a mainstay here in this territory. They would come in fairly regularly. Another good comparison of another top main event wrestler of that era would be Bruiser Brody, where he never mm-hmm. really laid roots down in one territory because he was so marketable. He could market himself to doing shots. Exactly. Because the Road Warriors and Bruiser Brody, they were kind of like Andre in the sense they were attractions at the time. We've talked at length that Andre had always been in the McMahon's back pocket. He was, whether it was Vince Jr. or his father before him, once Andre came over from Europe, he went to Canada first. You know, French speaking, went to Montreal. But when he came down here to the States, he came to the North first. And Andre worked all over the place. But that was how it worked. If you wanted to book Andre, you had to go through the McMahon's. So he always he had Andre in his back pocket, too, during all this as well. And when you bring up Andre and the Road Warriors and things like that, this is why they did those short stints everywhere because they could come in have the one or two big matches and then leave because if they stayed in any one territory for any length of time eventually as a promoter you'd have to beat them right and acts like that also get stale over time too Mm -hmm. i mean to this very day we still use the term road warrior pop that's where it came from they were so guys like what we're talking about like andre like the road warriors uh, Abdul the Butcher falls under this category. Uh, though Abby did do have did tend to stay a little longer than these other guys, but he was still right. an attraction guy. Austin and Rock, for more modern examples, right? But they were tied to one company. They would literally pop your house. That you, you could bring them into your territory, and they could literally double your ticket sales overnight. And you would have it for a whole week, and they would bump your TV ratings up for that week, next couple weeks, and the crowd was so happy to see them they would get the huge pop. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to this day, we still use the term road warrior pop. That's what it means, you know, because they were so unique. And I can't hate on anybody for getting that. So that brings us to the rock and wrestling connection that was established in 1984. I mean, it's common knowledge that Vince used the the rock and wrestling connection branding during the expansion. There were live specials that aired on MTV. You like Cindy Lauper. Hogan was making appearances all over the country. Vince created Tuesday Night Titans. We've talked a little bit before. He even bought the coveted 6.05 p.m. Saturday night time slot that had become a staple on TBS. Right. And, you know, that really is something that I think gets overlooked sometime in history. They they talk about it a bit on the rise and fall of WCW. Mm -hmm. You hear, I, I believe it was David Crockett saying that when they bought that slot back the following year, they basically financed WrestleMania. Right. I think one of the things it gets brought up, but people need to need to be reminded. Vince already had a, a cable overlay nationally as he's attempting to go national. He's making the deals with non-wrestling entities like MTV. You know, he's raiding all these territories and getting all these guys that we're talking about, the Pipers and the Hogan's and the, the Killer Bees and Heenan and Jimmy Hart and all this 
great talent, JYD. But he's also trying to expand his penetration nationally over cable television. And cable at the time is not what it is today. Right. As great a coverage as USA Network had, and he was even on them then on USA back then, it did not have the penetration here in the South. And Turner did because Turner's station in Atlanta started out as a regular old UHF station that was just over the airs, over the airway in, in you know, the, the metro Atlanta area. Mm-hmm. And Ted Turner truly was a pioneer in the cable television market, taking this local regional Atlanta-based television station, branding it the Superstation, and giving it a regional overlay that was working into being a national overlay at this point. Absolutely. And uh, to give a Midwest analogy here, because I'm from the Chicago area, uh, WGN was the same thing. It's readily available mm-hmm. here as an over-the-air station, but you also get WGN Superstation on your cable or satellite feed. For years, the basic cable package here in the upstate of South Carolina included TBS and WGN, but not USA. To give you, USA was one of those. That's interesting. The next package up to get USA was in the next bundle package. But WGN and WTBS were part of the basic cable package. I think a lot of people want to say, well, he was just trying to bury Georgia Championship Wrestling because the Crockett's were not involved yet at this point with Georgia. They're buying out that time slot that, that got them Georgia's. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, that I think needs to be clear because a lot of people who, you know, it's it's like, yes, you're right. The Crockett's were the NWA, but the NWA was not the Crockett's. But that's another story for another episode. But suffice it to say, the Crockett's in 84, 85, they weren't running Georgia yet. They were just running the Carolinas. They hadn't really started their national expansion yet where they started trying to cut deals with all these other territories. That's another show for another time as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but with that being said, by getting the time slot on Black Saturday, that's coveted 6.05 to 8.05 time slot on a Saturday night on TBS, gave them almost complete national overlay cable-wise. Because whatever markets USA didn't have, especially these ones here in the South, TBS was in it. It totally explains what you meant about how USA wasn't available until the second tier. So he was making sure his programming was available in the first tier. Exactly. It wasn't an attempt to strike it. Crockett didn't get involved until his show tanked down here in the South on TBS. And Turner didn't know what he was going to do. And there was a time there because Turner was upset with the the ratings that Vince was getting. And we've talked about Mm -hmm. that before, how Vince's style of booking and promoting just was not going to work with the fans here in this in this area because it wasn't what we were used to. It wasn't Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes in a 60-minute Broadway. That was not his style, you know? Right. We were used to the Briscoes and Wahoo McDaniel and Dusty and Tommy Rich versus Buzz Sawyer in the last battle of Atlanta, which is, you know, famous now, right? It's just a bloodbath mm-hmm. in a cage. You saw some matches like that, but they were very few and far between up, up fence. Maybe the, the boot camp match between Slaughter and Pat Patterson probably which was like 79, 80, that yeah. would probably fall in that category. I mean, probably the worst I remember seeing, uh, I have vague images of it, and it, it, it's after Hogan won the title. I think it's still before WrestleMania, but I remember there was a match Hogan had defending the title against Iron Sheik, and Hulk got busted open, and he, he right. had a face full of blood in that match. But it was few and far in between. Exactly, right. Went up there, whereas down here, feuds were blood feuds. They ended in, in gimmick matches where guy, both guys bled heavily, if they weren't that, they were these very technical, it was Southern wrestling. You told a story, you, the heels got heat by cheating, the baby faces got sympathy by selling and not breaking the rules. And that was, there, there was no 
over-the-top cartoony gimmicks. The, the entertainment value was very much downplayed, and the sports side was very much played up in all the territories down here. So Vince's product but tanks, and Turner, before Crockett buys it out, gives a time slot to Bill Watts. And Bill Watts is, is is running some of his Mid-South stuff on TBS. And there was a time there before Crockett stepped in right around the time of the first WrestleMania and and bought back the time slot for a million dollars even, which is what I think David's referencing in, the, in what you were quoting there. You know, yes, yes, By exactly. giving Vince that $1 million, he eventually – help to finance WrestleMania and, and Vince hasn't shied away from saying, yeah, it's kind of what he did with the money. You know, <laughs> right. Vince realized that Ted was not happy and he might as well just get out with the best he could. I think Vince would say that maybe behind closed doors. Cause I know on that rise and fall of WCW, he had this line of, I don't know why they went to buy it out or, or something to that effect. I don't know what politics were played. And in the back of my head, I'm like, your ratings were tanking. You know that. Right. You know? <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. But there was a time before Crockett stepped in and, and paid that million dollars. Ted was seriously considering giving the 605 time slot to Bill Watts. And that's one of those great what ifs in wrestling, in my opinion. What mm-hmm. if Bill Watts had gotten the 605 time slot instead of the Crockett's when Vince pulled out? And they and he would have gotten that kind of overlay with his product and his talent at the time. We're talking a young Ted DiBiase. We're talking a young Jim Duggan. You know, we're talking, uh, you know, JYD. Dog. Yeah, yeah. Going right back home for him because, I mean, Sylvester was from North Carolina, you know. I'm pretty sure as much as he enjoyed New York, Sylvester strikes me as a guy who probably felt a little more comfortable down here in the South, you know. Right. So, anyway, it's just a great what if, you know. Didn't happen, so it doesn't matter. But back to my back to what, what the thing I heard was <clears throat> an attempt by Vince McMahon when he bought that time slot during this rock and wrestling and this attempt to expand all building up to WrestleMania one, to even try to continue to raid more talent. He went down to Georgia with this idea of, well, I'll just, I'll not only will I get the time slot, let me get the top stars down here too. And he very infamously approached Ole Anderson, who was the booker and, and had bought into the territory there in Georgia when this all went down, because we all know the Briscoes had bought into the territory too, and they sold their shares to, to Vince and, mm-hmm. you know, basically stuck his hand out to Ole and said, I can't do this without you, Ole. I want you on my team. And Ole, if, you know, Ole's Ole. <laughs> what, what you saw on television during Ole Anderson's promos, that's Ole Anderson in real life. That's Alan Rogowski. I, I never <laughs> had any problem believing that. <laughs> Which is probably, let's be honest, what I'm getting ready to describe is probably why Ole was one of the most effective heel promos ever in the history of wrestling. Because of, that's just, he is a cantankerous old man, okay? He, and he's very believable. Basically, you know, told Vince to F off. And mm-hmm. physically threatened to hurt Vince and Linda, by the way. So much so that a few weeks later when Vince went back down to Atlanta, he took Gorilla Monsoon with him. <laughs> so if Ole had any ideas of getting a little frisky, at least somebody who could take care of themselves had Vince's back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And for people but, who may not have grown up with Gorilla Monsoon, I mean, most of his life, Gorilla was over 300 pounds. Right. And he was a legitimate athlete who played two sports in college. You know, he was a, a big, strong dude who, as you like to say, he looks like he could win a fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and that's, right. that's no discredit whatsoever to the toughness of Ole Anderson. I think we both agree Ole Anderson was a guy who could win a fight too. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, I think that's how serious Vince took the physical threat from Ole over this whole situation that the next time he went down there, he made sure he had somebody that would literally physically have his back. So it, right. yeah, wrestling is a crazy world, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> 
Absolutely. So around what time in your research was it he started cutting these deals with MTV? I know the Cindy Lauper stuff was kind of what precipitated it, but this is we're we're all talking the same time period. This is like spring to summer of '84. Yes, yes. Uh, legendary manager Lou Albano, of course, he appeared in Cindy Lauper's "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" music video, which still to this day I think has a great guitar riff. But uh, this led to an on-screen confrontation between the two. And for people who maybe started watching wrestling around WrestleMania, you may not know that Lou Albano was a heel for most of his career, and he was a heel here. He Mm. was playing the part of the male chauvinist and denigrated Cindy and all that, and the two agreed to a match with each one handpicking their wrestlers. Albano chose WWF Women's Champion Fabulous Moolah, and Lopper chose Wendy Richter, and that led to the first MTV Live special. And it's definitely interesting to note here that one of these MTV specials was centered around a women's match. Now, it's probably the best way to fit Cindy Lopper into it, and that's probably why they did it. Mm-hmm. But that was the show called The Brawl to End It All, and Wendy Richter pinned Moolah on that show to win the title. The start of Cindy Lopper's regular work with... WWE over the next year and by the end of the right. year Albano had turned baby face they reconciled they became on-screen friends and what really what I think led into this is what I it was the kind of the next chapter in this which I just simply like to call enter Roddy Piper because <laughs> right about that spring 1984 that's when Piper showed up and Piper at this time really couldn't wrestle because of the ear injury he had with Greg Valentine in Starcade '83. You know, for the first Starcade, yeah, right. Exactly. I think we talked about in, in that episode as as bloody and as graphic as that match was. It went over so well. Jim Crockett Jr. is like, "Hey, now you're going to take it around the horn." <laughs> so here, Greg and Greg and Roddy have blessed their hearts. God, I, I have so much respect for both those guys for this alone, but many other things. They go around and do that same crazy gimmick match at all the house shows here in the Carolinas and Virginias for the next two months. Are you kidding me? And and I and l- let me let me speak as a former in-ring competitor myself. When an announcer, Jim Ross especially will have that famous quote about gimmick matches, about chain matches or TLC or Hell in the Cell or Cage or whatever. These are the kind of matches that shorten men's careers. I absolutely believe that, yes. That is not hyperbole. I think it's Matt that said it, Matt Hardy, in interviews has talked about how every wrestler has their bump card, and when you've checked off all the bumps on your bump card, it's time to retire. I still remember Jake the Snake Roberts. I think it was still in the 90s. I was hearing him saying, Hardys, they're going to wind up in wheelchairs if they don't cut it out. <laughs> right, know? right. And, and and obviously, some guys can handle bumps better than others. And sometimes it's a cumulative number of bumps. Sometimes it's in like a case of someone like, I say, a Mick Foley or a Sabu. It's not the number of bumps. It's the number of like super crazy bumps. You know, right. obviously, you, you can take a thousand normal flatback bumps and they're not going to have the effect on you that maybe 10 of those crazy bumps are going to have on you. But I digress. It's just one of those things where Piper and Valentine were really giving their all for the entertainment of the fans and for the business with that. And like you said, we're a full year and a half later when Piper's brought in the fold and he's still feeling the effects. Because Even though the inner ear damage that was the buildup to Starcade 1 was a work, he was actually injured in his ear because of the brutality of these matches him and Greg had. 
and there was actual damage to his ear. So yeah, it was there. Now, if I remember right, the whole thing that precipitated Cindy Lauper and Lou Albano with the video was Cindy was a working class girl who grew up in New York City and went to the shows. Went to she Vince's was legitimately a fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she grew up. I mean, you like you said, Albano was a heel in that era of WWWF. You know, before Vince Vincent K. McMahon bought it out from his dad, they had the unholy trinity of managers. Every heel had a manager, and it was either Lou Albano, the Grand Wizard, and who was the third one in that in, the, in that that little trifecta of, of bad of evil managers? Classy Freddie Blassie. Yes, Classy. How could I forget Classy Freddie Blassie? I'll, I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> uh, God rest his soul. He, what a great talent he was. I don't think people understand how over he was as a heel, as a wrestler. But I digress. But, I mean, the, every heel in that era in the WWF had a manager, and it was one of those three guys. And then Arnie Skolan was the babyface manager, and he managed guys like Bob Backlund. Well, mm-hmm. you know, Cindy grew up watching that stuff. And even though I, I'm pretty sure they smartened her up a little bit, if you're talking the area you're talking about, those guys were not going to smarten Cindy up too much, but she's an entertainer. She got it. She knew. Right. You know? Right. And she probably felt blessed by the ability to do this. You know? Sure, sure. We'll get to Mr. T in a minute because I don't, I, you know, there's, there's a kind of a different uh, mm-hmm. aspect that, come, that comes with him, but we'll get to that. So Cindy's a legitimate fan of the business. She just asked one of her childhood heroes, even though he was a heel, to be in her video, and then it precipitates all this. I remember when Piper entered in, that that famous MTV spot where they had her in the ring with Lou and they were going to present her with a gold record for the girls just want to have fun or a platinum record or something. And she was in the ring with David Wolf, who was her manager and I believe her boyfriend at the time. I think you're right. I could be wrong. Yeah, but he's a very famous pop rock and roll music producer. And they did the spot where Piper came out. And, and if you know Piper's interview style, you'll understand what I'm saying. That, oh, this is great, isn't that great, isn't that nice? And then takes the frame thing and breaks the frame over Albano's head. Yeah, that, that was December of 84, I believe. Right, right. And that was on MTV, wasn't it? Actually, I think that was an MSG show. Okay. I think maybe there was just footage of it they taped and put on MTV. It could have been, yeah. But regardless, for those of you that don't know, before Lou Albano was a successful manager, he was in a middle card tag team with Tony Altamore called the Sicilians. So Lou knew how to work, how to take bumps, things like that. And I'm sure that's why they had Piper hit him with the foreign object. Because, I mean, right. my, I heard that originally Piper wanted to hit Cindy. And even in 1984, there's like, we cannot have a man hit a, hit a woman that he's three times bigger than on national television. <laughs> you know? right. Piper would have got arrested. Let's be honest, right? And you got to remember during all this, how soon would have that been after the John Stossel, David Schultz incident in the WWF? Less than a year? Something like, yeah. Yeah, because that was in 84 as well. Yeah, because that was early 84, and you got to remember, they even talk about in the documentary, Schultz was upset, and when we get to the card, we'll talk about this, Schultz wasn't on WrestleMania 1, and he was a major player at the time. He got in so much hot water over that, Vince sent him to Japan to kind of let the, the heat die down, and when he came back, he didn't reuse him. And in fact, David was very hurt when he's like, well, you're not going to be on the show, and he's like, what? But anyway, right. you know, so obviously there was very much a public microscope on Vince McMahon at that time, and he's asking for it. He's doing these big national – he's done this expose where one of his wrestlers just slapped the piss out of a well-respected national journalist. He's brought in one of the biggest pop stars at the current time in rock and roll and pop music into the fold and had her be involved on screen. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say. I mean, to give the analogy uh, of 
how big Cindy Lauper was. This would have been probably somewhat like bringing in Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera. A top music A-lister. Right, exactly. And, and, and because of that, you know, the, once again, MTV, you've got to realize, is fairly new, too. So they're looking for any kind of programming. So it was it was kind of a marriage that made sense. But uh, then you've also got Hogan, your champion and top babyface, is in one of the biggest movies of the era in Rocky Three. So you're getting all the national exposure you want, but it also puts a magnifying glass on you. So that's probably why he went away uh, from wanting, you know, Piper to hit. And then there was talk about, well, then let him hit David Wolf. You know, well, David Wolf's almost as small as Cindy Lauper. And you know? who the so hell Lauper, knew who David Wolf was? We all right. know who Cindy was. Okay, so so right. Cindy Lauper's boyfriend at at best. Who's going to care? Right. But it, 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 with all that being said, do you want my opinion as a, as a former wrestler and who knows guys from that era? It simply came down to Vince McMahon and Piper and and Alabama and everybody else going. We can't smarten them up that much. Right. That's what I think it really that particular spot that was a setup for WrestleMania. I think that was it all boiled down to you're a, you're a trained worker. Albano's a trained worker. He's an old pro. We can give him a gimmick shot. I can't remember. He might even bladed. Did he? Did he get juice? I, I think so. I, I, I'm assuming it was a blade. I don't think it was anything hard way. But no, no. But I, I think he got color. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to. I, I, I unfortunately could not find a clip of that anywhere. You know. I maybe I didn't look hard enough. You might even told me it was on the network somewhere and I missed it. But but I could not find that clip. But I think because it was. I mean, everyone has seen those ones. The American recording industry will give you the. the it's like a real. 12-inch vinyl, but it's gold, and it's signed a pretty mm. glass frame. So he busted the glass when he hit it over Albano's head. Right. And I think that I, I'm pretty sure, knowing how old school Albano was, and if you've seen his forehead, you know he wasn't afraid of the, of, of, of the gig, of the blade. He probably got a little color to, to sell it. You know, right. That right. was what you did back Like we said, it wasn't that Vince didn't do that back then. He just didn't do it with the regularity that they did down here in the South. Another element to the whole getting heat on Roddy Piper because we've talked about the rock and wrestling connection here. Piper took the public stance uh, on TV that he hated rock music. What better way to generate heat on an MTV show than somebody come on saying, I hate the music you play here. Piper, of course, played the bagpipes. Bagpipes played wherever he went. Bagpipes, to me, sound beautiful, but to the average person in 1984, they probably sounded annoying. Which, which, begs, which, 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 which begs me to ask the question. This is completely off a wrestling topic, but, you know, it is what it is. If bagpipes don't fit in rock and roll music, then how is it Big Country had one of my favorite 81-hit wonder hits about a year and a half, two years later within a big country where they have the guitar sound like a bagpipe because they were a Scottish man. You remember the song I'm talking about, don't oh, you? Oh, yeah, and uh, Queen <laughs> that with That riff the, is uh, great. Yeah, yeah, riff's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Queen with the song "Give Me the Prize" from Highlander. I mean, yes, Brian yes. May does a whole solo that sounds like bagpipes. But right, uh, right. But so we digress, folks. We're talking about rock music. We, we should yeah. be talking about wrestling. Well, but it is uh, integral here. It is what, integral here. I think. What instrument does Bon Scott play? And long way to go if you got to, or long way, long way to the top. Long way to the top. Long way to the top. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's the metalhead and who's not, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the guy who doesn't know ACDC versus the guy who does. Yeah, long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Yes, that is Bon Scott. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. But. <laughs> but anyway, wasn't this also around the same time? Because part of the way Piper generated heat because of the aforementioned injury was that was the birth of Piper's Pit. Mm-hmm. And that was a way to get Piper on, on screen, on your television show, with that great heel promo that Piper could cut, you know, 
and just get people to hate him. So it was around the same time that the famous breaking the coconut over over Snooka's head too, wasn't it? Right, right. I think that was mid eighty four. Yeah, and and this is important to note too. It's kind of brought up some in this season's Dark Side of the Ring on Vice as well when they talk about the murder of Nancy Argentino and and Snooka's involvement in that. That was a major precipitating factor in why Snooka was not the top guy instead of Hogan because Snooka was massively over with that crowd and that territory. They had to turn him baby because before this era, everywhere Snooka had been, like I remember him here in the Carolinas in the early 80s, he he was a bona fide heel. You know, everybody was, remembers played, uh, Snooka diving off the cage on Bob Backlund. And that was, yeah, exactly. No, that wasn't Backlund. That was against Morocco. He had turned babyface by then. That was they Morocco. They were two different matches. Well, he probably did it more than once, knowing Jim. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Hell, I saw him do it to Jeff Jarrett in the 90s. <laughs> so. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It was, that was kind of Snooka's thing. But anyway, it was, it, you know, he was a guy who Vince probably was going to make the top guy. But, between the the scandal with Nancy Argentino's death, and let's be honest, part of what led to that was Jimmy just wasn't dependable. He had demons. He had drug and alcohol issues. And every guy will tell you that knew Jimmy in that era. When Jimmy was sober, he was the nicest guy you could meet. But that was the problem. He wasn't very sober very often. And he had a violent temper. And he was a big, strong, scary, athletic dude. JYD is another guy that was once again not dependable enough that I think Vince brought in with the hope of making him the top guy. And uh, it's pretty well documented. Uh, JYD, he, he, he liked a little bit of the, the herb, shall we say, you know, and mm-hmm. that could make him less than dependable. And as we saw later in his life and career, one of the well-known fallouts from marijuana use is it gives you the munchies and JYD didn't really care about his diet or his physique as much as he probably should have. And uh, it began to affect him. And uh, the JYD you see in this era of WWF was not the physique that you saw during his run with the, the Freebirds and DiBiase and Butch Reed and those guys just years before this in Mid-South when he was coming right out of college. He was already starting to let himself go. And, and so I, I think Hogan was eventually the guy that in this era that Vince was going to go with because he wanted that idea of the good-looking blonde guy with the, the tan and the great build would sell across a much larger demographic than an athletic black man or a Polynesian man. I, no racism. I don't think there was any right. racism involved. I think it was just it was just the two guys of color that probably should have gotten that spot. And they are both involved in this event, by the way, and we'll talk about that. They just were not as dependable. And that's not a knock on Hogan. It was just... Hogan didn't have the drug and alcohol problems that JYD and Snooker did. Am I wrong in saying that? No, no, not at all. I mean, Hogan will tell you to this day that he would smoke pot and do roids and stuff like that, but he always struck me as the type of guy that would be able to control it so it didn't become a problem. Yeah, and I think with JYD, like I said, he wasn't the hard drugs and alcohol like issues like Snooker had, but JYD didn't care if his body went to pot because of all the overeating and munchies and stuff. Right, and Hogan right. was always a guy who was like, okay, I know my limits. I can't do that tonight, or I got to watch what I eat, you know, because I got to maintain my build. But I, I mean, I think no one would disagree. As limited athletically as as JYD was, he 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 probably was a better natural athlete than Hogan was. I mean, he played college football, you know, and neither one of Hogan or, or JYD even come close to comparing to the natural athleticism of Jimmy Snuka. 
for God's sakes, Jimmy Snooker was a cliff diver back in the islands before he got into wrestling. So he was a truly, you know, nimble, agile, light on his feet guy. But that's genetics more than it is anything you can train. But I digress. So in December 1984, this was kind of the first shot which would lead to WrestleMania. Dick Clark, another legit A-lister in the entertainment world. You know, he oh, yeah. presented Albano with, with the award at Madison Square Garden. Piper, Orndorff, Bob Orton Jr., they crashed the party, smashed Albano with his own award. Now, during the melee here, this is where you get the moment where Piper kicks Cindy. Now, I'm sure he you know, pulled the kick as, as, as much he, as he, he could. Was, but it, it, was, it, was, it was a work. <laughs> you know, but it was to give that visual. Hogan came out to make the save, and that kind of launched the Hogan-Piper feud. So the, right. the biggest angle leading into WrestleMania happened on February 15th, 1985 on MTV. This was the war to settle a score. This saw Piper and Hogan collide with the WWF championship on the line. Hogan brought his friend, Mr. T, a huge star because of the A-team. I mean, th- th- this would be something the equivalent of you know, pick your top-rated action drama or medical drama, you know. He's probably, uh, like, like, say, like Mark Harmon is right now in NCIS. Uh, well, well, younger, but, but yeah, you, yeah, you get yeah, the idea. Yeah, I'm, talk, I'm, I'm talking about star level, you know? Exactly, yeah. Uh, he's that level, and I mean, I don't think it's hyperbole to state that at that particular moment, Mr. T might have been the biggest star on television. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not movies, but television, yes. Right, right, television alone. For what it's worth, it was kind of strange. Because both he and Hogan play heels in Rocky, and here they are being cast as babyfaces mm-hmm. in, in Vince's world. Clubber Lang's one of the greatest heels of all time in a movie, but I digress. Right, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I think, you know, I, I don't remember the exact interview I heard this in or if I heard this in a locker room from one of the boys. But did your research show you anything that there was some trepidation on Hogan or on Vince's part? of going this route because he didn't think Piper was physically big enough that people would believe he could challenge Hogan. Well, Piper, yeah, he he's... Piper was not a big guy. Yeah, he's never been the biggest guy. And I think, quite frankly, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to this because Lord knows Roddy Piper's in my top five of all time favorites. I think he was a little self-conscious about it. Roddy could, you know, rest in peace, brother. I'm not trying to rip on the dead here. Roddy was one of the big name guys I met that was a bit on the paranoid side. And I don't know enough about him personally because he didn't let guys like me get that close to him. You know, I, I was never able to get close to him like I was with, like, say, a Stan Hansen or, you know, these other people I've talked about or Chief. That just wasn't mm-hmm. Piper's style. I think at the end of the day, the take I always got on Piper, both from what people would say about him publicly and my few interactions with him, he was just a quiet guy who wanted to go home to his wife and kids. And wrestling was just a way to, to give them a good life. You know, I, I could see where you come up with that idea that maybe it wasn't as bad and Piper was just more self-conscious about it. But there was, there is obviously a decided size difference between Piper and Hogan. Piper's what, 6'1", 230? If he's even six feet. I mean, if you look at some of these videos and such of Piper and T together, Piper's actually taller than Mr. T is. Now granted, Mr. T's wider, but Piper's taller. That was one thing that I found fascinating as a kid not fully understanding the worked aspect of everything and kind of opened my eyes up to like the forced perspective that 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 the brilliant directors of photography and, and movies and television can do. It also speaks to how big pro wrestlers are <laughs> is mm-hmm. how small T looked compared to all these pro wrestlers, you know? Right, right, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not that Mr. T is a small man, 
but next to even Snuka and Piper, and he looked small. And next to guys that were jacked, like Orndorff and Hogan, he looked tiny. And Bob Orton, but then again, Bob Orton's one of those guys that is deceptively tall. Bob Orton is legitimately about 6'4". You know, he's a, he's a tall man. To give a modern example about deceptively tall, it's, it's what I say about Dean Ambrose, John Moxley. You didn't really see it when he was in WWE, but you see it now in his AEW days. I mean, he's, he's legit like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, but when he's standing right, next right. to Roman Reigns, who's about the same height and about twice as wide, he looks small. And a, a, great, a great example I like to bring up all the time, and I think it speaks to the WWF being the land of giants. Sean Waltman, one, two, three kid, X-Pac, whatever you want to call him. He is taller than me. I can vouch for that. He's, he's about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, he's just skinny. Mm. That's all. And when you think of, when you think of Sean Waltman, you think of one of the smallest guys ever to be a top guy in the WWF, and right. he's 6'3". <laughs> but you put, him next to, you put him next to Scott Hall, and he looks like a midget. Right, but Scott Hall's like 6'7", so there you go. <laughs> right. But back to where to settle a score, one of the things that can be said about this that is kind of a lost art in big-time matches because nowadays, the big-time matches, they'd have the long stare. There'd be kind of the pacing around the ring as they're trying to feel each other out or whatever and maybe mm-hmm. get the lockup. This War to Settle scored in 85. As soon as that bell ring, Hogan and Piper, they just tore into each other. It, it was just, it was forearm shot after forearm shot. And it, it was intense right out of the gate because this mm-hmm. was a grudge match. And... I think most fans know the outcome. Orndorff and Orton again interfered, resulting in the disqualification. Mr. T ran in in to make the save. And after the dust settled, Mr. T cut a promo saying he'll have Hogan's back no matter what. They issued the challenge to Piper for the tag team match, which eventually became WrestleMania. And this show in 1985 did something like a nine rating. And wasn't it also the fallout on this where Snuka got involved as well, where he was one of the baby faces that ran out to save Hogan? Right, right. If it wasn't there, it was at, at, at one of the follow-up events because that, that mm-hmm. was the whole main event was Piper and Orndorff were the, the tag team with Orton as their corner man, and then Snuka was the corner man for Hogan and T. Right. So in the following weeks, WrestleMania was announced to be held at Madison Square Garden, and by this time, WWF, they, they've gathered considerable national attention. There's kind of this nexus or dichotomy or whatever kind of creative word you'd want to throw out there uh, of this blending of events. You've got the top babyface in Hogan, a legit top Hollywood star with Mr. T, and they're against the two top heels. Mm-hmm. They're in Sports Illustrated. They're in a lot of mainstream press. Hogan and Mr. T hosted Saturday Night Live. Tons of exposure nationwide. Hogan's doing all this press, all these uh, appearances nationwide. Yeah, and, yeah yet another yeah. one of those bad black eyes for the WWF happens during this build-up to that when when T and um, Hogan go on the Richard Belzer show. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Richard Belzer is, I believe he's passed away now, but he's mostly known by more current younger listeners of ours as being one of the one of the cops on yeah, it was law and order uh special victims unit svu but he was a stand-up comedian in the 70s days had his own light night show and they went on the show remember this is coming off the tail of dr d david schultz slapping john stossel and piper kicking a woman on national television <laughs> right. and in less than a year he you know askingly asked hogan will show me a little wrestling 
and Hogan hooked him in, in, you know, what would be known now in MMA terms as a guillotine choke and legitimately choked him out on national television. And when he let go, Belzer fell straight to the ground and, and busted his head open on the on the hard floor and wound up getting something like seven or twelve stitches or something like that. Didn't he? Sued sued Vince and Hogan and I mean, if Vince was looking for national exposure to to build up to WrestleMania, these three events were probably not the ones he wanted to get. Wasn't what he wanted shining, but hey, it, 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 I think it's the example of any exposure is good exposure. Right. I do have some good news for you. Richard Belzer, mm-hmm. actually, he is still alive and well. He's just retired. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I'm thinking maybe you got him confused with Jerry Orbach, who was yes, in Jerry one of those. Passaway. Yeah, yeah Jerry, Jerry Passaway. Of course, was the voice of Lumiere and Beauty and the Beast. I love Jerry Orbach. Oh, and, and the voice of Zachary Fox and Galaxy Rangers. That's where I, yep. I learned yep. him from. So, yep. But what wasn't good PR, but. Right. I guess it worked to Vince's advantage after all said and done. And we mentioned it before about Cindy Lauper coming in and she was a genuine fan and felt blessed and all that. Mm-hmm. Mr. T coming in, I don't know if he was taking it as a job or he was trying to be an alpha male or whatever. I don't know how much was a work or a shoot at that point, but it's no secret that Roddy Piper did not care for Mr. T coming into his business, you know, his turf. Right. But as a heel... Obviously, Roddy's job is to get heat so people pay to see him get his comeuppance. So he did a lot of dastardly, jerky things to Mr. T. But I think in real life, there really was a little bit of a, okay, you're coming into my world, you know. I, I think some of it is this, too. And, and I'm, I'm looking at it from, a, from a, a worker's perspective. Piper, whatever you feel about Roddy Piper, one thing I do know is Piper, he believed in the fraternity of wrestling, you know, that – we were a hard scrabble mishmash group of guys and gals that had all, as Flair would, would, you know, say many, many times, bled, sweat, and played the price to get to be a part of that fraternity. And he was one of those guys that did not like outsiders coming into his world, especially if it meant they were going to take away food and money, which, you know, money equates to food, from guys who had paid their dues. And by having a guy like T in your main event, no matter what somebody had done, like say a, a David Schultz, having a guy like that who had paid his dues not have a spot on the, on the this big show and get that big payday just so a guy like this could be on, that probably didn't sit well with Piper. You follow what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's It goes back to the analogy that we've both talked about over the years about the wrestling business and the wrestling brotherhood. It, it's like a nonviolent mafia. You earn mm-hmm. your stripes. You have to earn your dues to get in and get the respect. The best thing I can, I, example I can give of that personal is the guy, sometimes, a lot of times it's a referee so, or a job guy, you know, a guy lower on the card. He will be unmercilessly bullied and picked on and ribbed in a locker room. And I've seen it happen with a really good friend of mine who's, who's a referee. And he had a really, really bad case of Bell's palsy, worse than Jim Ross's. And we all picked on him for the way he talked and the way his face looked and blah, blah, blah. And he just took it in stride, you know. And he'd always say, well, what am I going to do? I'm five foot five and 160 pounds, and you guys are all six foot and over three. <laughs> I'm going to get killed. What am I going to do, right? Because I remember telling him one time he wrote a show with me. I'm like, Dan, you got to stand up for yourself. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? I'll get killed. But on those rare occasions that Daniel would go out with us, as a group of guys to the bar or the restaurant after the show, believe you me, didn't nobody wasn't in our little group say anything to Daniel without all of us stepping up to protect him. 
all of a sudden he wasn't the butt of joke because he was one of us. He earned respect. Yes, because he was one of us. And and I've seen it. I've done it personally. Where guys that I would just rib unmercifully in a, in a locker room when I would be out in public, if somebody tried to, oh, you're one of those wrestlers, you know, you know, you've heard the stories a million times of the drunk dude trying to challenge the pro wrestlers. Oh, you know? I, I've seen one. I think I might have told. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I forgot you told me Samoa Joe stepped in on that one, didn't he? <laughs> and Matt Morgan, yes. That's <laughs> two guys that would not want on my ass. That's two <laughs> big old boys. Woo! But anyway, of course, I, one, I'm not that dumb, and two, I'm, I'm I'm a brother, so they wouldn't have done that to me anyways. But I, right, I digress. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm one of them. But I personally would just pick on some of these guys and you know I they would go out and have a drink with me after the show and a guy would step up and start talking to him and you know I'd he'd try to act a little bit I put my hand out you sit down I got this you know and next thing you know the guy realizes I'm surrounded by four or five guys that are all six foot whatever and 250 or bigger I, I, I might I might have bit off more than I could chew you know <laughs> right so yeah that's just that's that's the way the wrestling fraternity is right we can pick on you because you're one of us, but can't nobody else do it? The, the closest I can relate that to is is kind of the analogy of, you know, the little brother. It's like, hey, nobody picks on my little brother but me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it, 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 and I think Piper had very much that mentality. So I think that was part of his makeup about T's involvement. It's like, okay, I get it. We're getting a lot of mainstream coverage. Why is he in the main event taking a spot away from a guy who's paid his that's what I think was a lot of the beef there. Mm-hmm. And I think to, in T's defense, I don't think T understood that. You know, he was completely right. oblivious to that. Yeah. He he had said before that he didn't hate Roddy. He just, there was the animosity there. You know, like I said, mm-hmm. I think T was just ignorant to the fact of why Roddy, and, and I will say this about Roddy, and this is, is nothing but praise. Before his untimely passing, when he had his own podcast, he had Vince Russo on. Oh, that is such a great episode. And as polarizing as Vince Russo can be to those within the business and those who are fans of the business, the way Piper broke down why so many people don't like Vince to Vince was the most amazing thing I have ever heard in my life. And I will say I don't think Vince Russo had ever had it explained to him that way. And I think it really gave Vince Russo pause. And I think... It was a great example of Roddy Piper was a man's man. He defended the business in a tactful, calm, and adult way without insulting or cussing at or anything like that to Vince Russo or demeaning Vince Russo or any aspect of Vince Russo in any way. And as much as I love Jim Cornette and as much as I call him my friend, he is so passionate about things that sometimes he loses sight of the forest for the trees. And that's why he is the way he is with Vince. I'm not saying I disagree with some of his reasoning about what he don't like with Vince. What he wants to do to Vince, let it go, Jimmy. Right. All, right. all that hate's gonna burn you up, brother. I, I love Corny to death. But he and I love his passion. But Piper was able to do in a what hour and a half, two hour interview, I felt no one in fifteen years in the business had been able to, to do to Russo. And right. and we, even he, leading into that, he, I mean Piper introduces that show where he says we're going to talk through this like men he gives them a caveat before they even start Mm -hmm. and and i think if you need to understand why roddy piper had an issue with mr t being involved in the first wrestlemania i of course i think that's all been archived because he got controversial and taken off taken off before piper passed away 
But if you can find that episode that I'm talking about, listen to it, and you'll get a very, very keen insight on I think the man Piper was and how he felt about this business and why he probably felt the way he felt about Mr. T being involved in WrestleMania 1. But we're getting, we're getting a little wordy and off topic. Yeah, right. So, so you, that, we've got the main event set. What are the other things that, they've, that, you've, that they're building at this point? Well, I got the semi main with all the stuff with Albano and Cindy and the girls, and, right? Yeah, 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 and Wendy, and there's the undercard being built up. Well, so we're we're an hour into the podcast. We're finally getting into the <laughs> WrestleMania. <laughs> here, but well, you said you wanted to talk the build up first, so ladies and gentlemen, absolutely <laughs> right. And there was Bobby Heenan making his WWE debut. They had the feud with Andre and Big John Studd. That was kind of your special attraction uh, hoss fight thing. Exactly. We, we mentioned at the top of the show, Barry Windham and Mike Rotunda, they were the U.S. Express who actually had Hogan's theme before Hogan did. And mm-hmm. they faced Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. So you have the U.S. Express against the guy from Iran and the guy from the Soviet Union, you know. Managed by classy Freddie Blassie. Right. Junkyard Dog uh, against Greg Valentine. I'm not really sure why that was the WrestleMania match because we were texting off air that uh, Valentine's beef was with Tito Santana at, at, at this right. point. So. And it was over the Intercontinental title, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Well, going back to the semi-main, the women's world title match, that's one of those famous, and that's been talked about on last season's Dark Side of the Ring when they did the Moolah episode. And and I've talked about it on, on the old A1 podcast. We did a history of women in wrestling. That was one of those where Moolah was past her prime and didn't want to let go, and Moolah wanted to be the one to face Wendy Richter. And Vince was, you know, mm. so that's why Leilani got the, the shot. And, and the way of placating uh, Moolah was Vince said, well, you can be her trainer and manager and her mentor. And in the buildup uh, to the show, a lot of the, the vignettes you would see would be Moolah like running these training sessions with Leilani, getting her ready for the match. So it was Vince didn't want to throw Moolah under the bus, I think. But at the same time, I don't think Moolah was she never intimated that to me, you know, yeah. And she but, was in her fifties then, I think, right? Exa- exactly. And, but when I would talk to Lillian, uh, I'd talk to her about many things in the business. WrestleMania one was one of those topics I tended to avoid because I knew it was a bit of a sore spot with her, you know. Yeah. And, and, it's, and that's why she she wanted to be, you know, God rest her soul too. And you can have all your thoughts because Lord knows Moolah is one of the most controversial characters in the history of this crazy business. She was definitely one that saw herself as a star to the very end. So take that for what it's worth. There are some matches because I've been trying to find episodes on the WWE Network of some of these weekly episodes that ran of maybe Tuesday Night Titans or whatever the weekend shows would have been because, I mean, Brutus Beefcake, who, you know, again, is probably one of those guys that came over uh, because of Hogan uh, against David Sammartino with Bruno being in David's corner. And if I understand this correctly, Vince still wanted to push Bruno in ring because he remembers all the draws that Bruno had. And My understanding was, part of the was, rift. was a more, it, you're sort of right. I think Bruno falls into that category with Moolah, whereas I think Bruno, once again, no disrespect to the dead. And, and if you think I don't respect Bruno San Martino as a Southern based guy, go back and listen to our tribute show about Bruno San Martino and you'll know how much mm-hmm. I respect Bruno San Martino. He's amazing. Amazing. One of the greatest ambassadors and spokesmen for this business ever. Just a classy gentleman. But I, I agree. Yes. But you have to remember, this is an era where Bruno had just a few years prior 
left the WWF because he was burned out. He'd had his second long run when he dropped the belt to, I want to say it was, it was, uh, uh, yeah. dropped the belt. Oh, oh, this would have been Superstar. Super, was, superstar, yeah. yes. Yeah, Superstar, which was the setup for Bob Backlund to get the belt. And he was not very, what's the word I'm looking for? Pleasant in his remarks about the WWF on his way out. And it was pretty public and vocal about it. Uh, and they didn't really make amends until he realized his son David wanted to get a career. And then all of a sudden, Vince was willing to talk to Bruno and Bruno was willing to talk to Vince and they buried the hatchet, so to speak. I think Bruno was doing it because he understood whether he liked Vince or not. Vince was the biggest game in town. So right. if his son wanted to get over, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. In the end, it can be looked at as Vince is trying to push Bruno's son as potentially an ex-big guy. Because again, it, it goes back to maybe if there's some alternate reality and I haven't figured out how to travel into alternate realities yet. If David became a star and his star zoomed to the skies and got a big hot new baby face in her hands, then Bruno would kind of be integral to telling that story. You know, am I making sure. sense with that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And and Bruno, he still was, he obviously wasn't as over at this era in 85 and he would have been in, say, 75. But there were still a lot of old-timey fans that were coming to Vince's show, and Bruno was, he was Bruno, you know? And then we've, we've talked at length before about smart bookers will put a veteran with a young guy to kind of help the young guy learn the ropes. So Bruno did put the tights on and wrestle as David's tag team partner a lot on the shows leading up to this. And that's, of course, it, it makes sense. Vince is, okay, David's green. His daddy's a vet. His daddy could teach him. And Bruno's going to want to do this because he wants to help his son, you know? Right. But I do think that you're correct in the fact that he saw – some drawing power still with Bruno and the pop Bruno gets when he comes out in WrestleMania one proves that there was some truth to that followed by the fact. I think he felt that David had that potential too, but it was, didn't take long to figure out David just didn't have the natural charisma. His dad did. He wasn't as good an athlete. He wasn't as big. And that's not a knock on David San Martino. It's more of a praise of how awesome Bruno was. I think I've said this before. I know Jr. has said it or something similar. Bruno San Martino's don't grow on trees, right? If it was that easy, everybody would be Stone Cold Steve Austin in the business, wouldn't they? Right, right. It, it's the type of thing, like, to give basketball analogies, Michael Jordan, Shaq, you know, all-time greats. Yeah, Kobe, whatever. Yeah, those, they were once-in-a-lifetime talents, mm -hmm. which I, I repeat, and I was completely – I'm jumping forward 25 years, but I'll say it till, till we quit doing this podcast or I die, whichever comes first. The fact that Vince McMahon had The Rock and Austin on his roster at the same time is unheard of. There's Absolutely. another time I right. can think of in the history of, res of wrestling where you have two of those type of talents on the same roster at the same time. The closest you have is Hogan and Savage. Flair, Dusty. Yeah, Flair and Dusty, okay. Yeah. But, du but Dusty was definitely past his prime at that point, and Flair was not. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I think that's what was going on with the Bruno thing. And it, it wasn't long after WrestleMania, David was gone, and then Bruno was talking bad about WWF again. Not to say that's the only reason. But there's a lot of things you can say about Bruno. Two things you can definitely say is he legitimately was a very strong man who you could tell worked out, and two, he was clean. It was all natural. And when his arguments were against guys like Hogan being on steroids, yeah, you can kind of see where that would bother a guy like Bruno, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that reminds me, I, I'm completely off topic, and I think I brought this up before. Ted DiBiase told me one time, you know what the scariest thing you can see in the ring is, kid? I said, no, what's that, Ted? 
He goes, looking across and seeing Stan Hansen pulling that arm cocked back to let Larry and him squinting because you know he can't see. <laughs> and he's going to swing it. Whether you're, Now, how you take it's completely up to you. <laughs> but anyways, I digress. Yeah. Continuing down the card, uh, Ricky Steamboat, again, one of those names we were talking about with, with the first Starcade. And he and, defeated and, Matt. And second, by the way. Defeated Matt Bourne, who went on to be Big Josh and Doink. I think the version of WrestleMania that I saw back in the day, like on VHS, I don't think they had that match on there because I don't I don't remember watching that match. We all know about King Kong Bundy against Dusty Jones for the the nine second match that was actually like seventeen seconds or something like that. And that match was kind of weird. It was one of the things I noticed when we want to rewatch this. That match in the first match, which was the an executioner for those who don't know, was Playboy Buddy Rose under a mask and a bodysuit. Uh, were both essentially TV matches. And we would think of that to be so odd on a pay-per-view nowadays, you know? But but you have to remember, fast forward a year, what was the main event of, of WrestleMania 2? I was going to bring that up because we were talking before about Dusty <laughs> only cutting promos uh, at the first right. arcade, and then he challenges Flair at the next arcade. King Kong yeah, Bundy, yeah. he won this in a squash. He'd only debuted like two or three weeks before. And that was mm-hmm. the the original building block to Bundy challenging Hogan the following year. I think that was by design right. by Vince, quite frankly. Exactly. That was the point I was trying to make. And once again, talking about rating talent, King Kong Bundy was one of those guys. I mean, I think he had, I, I want to say Vince got him from. Uh, I want to say he was in Mid-South. Was he part of the Legion of Doom or? Uh, I think, yeah, I think you're right. But before that, he had had the run against Fritz in World Class in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Right yeah, it was before, Fritz's retirement match, if I recall correctly. He sure was. Pinned him in the end zone of, of uh, Cowboy Stadium or Texas Stadium, right across right on the big star of <laughs> the Cowboys mm-hmm. helmet. But that was, of course, King Kong Bundy with hair. And if I remember right before he left Bill Watts' territory, he lost a hair versus hair match. Thus, the bald headed. King Kong Bundy that we all knew that we saw at WrestleMania one and Jimmy Hart was his manager. Jimmy Hart was new to the territory too. He just raided Memphis to get him. So mm-hmm. this match was meant to establish that duo as a heat seeking, generating heel tandem and as a legitimate threat to Hulk Hogan. And he's doing this a year out. I know that sounds crazy considering what goes on nowadays in wrestling, right. you know, that, that you would plan that far out. Another uh, analogy to that with WWE would have been WrestleMania four when Savage won the world title. Looking back on it, it's like, ah, okay, so next year we're going to do Hogan and Savage. It's like looking back well, it, on it, it's obvious. But if you were right. watching at the time, especially me being a Savage mark, I, I didn't see it. But, but that all plays into what I've talked about before on, on our booking 101 episode. I am definitely not a direct disciple, but I'm a disciple of the school of Eddie Graham booking, which is you book what you want the end of the program to be. And then you book backwards. Exactly. That's yes. prime example of that. It was quite effective in doing that. By the way, I think SD Jones is highly underrated because at this point in his career, at the end of his career, he was nothing more than a job guy. A talent enhancement is what we would call the business of carpenter, you know, mm-hmm. And and his induction speech for Tony Atlas's Hall of Fame induction, that is a great speech. Oh yeah, I, I always thought SD had a pretty good promo for a for mm-hmm. a you know low card guy. I did find it unusual that they were billing him from Philadelphia because one of the things that always drew me to SD Jones was I used to, and I loved how Howard Finkel would say it. Uh, he was always billed that I remember as. From Antigua and the Lesser Antilles. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I was like, when I watched it yesterday to prepare for this, I'm like, 
When did S.C. Jones move to Philly? I thought he was from Antigua and the Lesser Antilles. And by the way, I might add, this might be the last time you'll ever see a WWF show where a guy is announced as being parts unknown, weight unknown. That was the actual weight and hometown of the executioner <laughs> in the opening match. <laughs> I mean, even Kane has a weight. They don't announce Kane's hometown, but they announce a weight. Well, I do know there is one person who knows all aspects of parts unknown. And of course, that's Chuck Norris, and nobody's going to ask him to explain it. No, no, no. But <laughs> it's that's funny. <laughs> that, that's outstanding, bro. But it, it's it was weird as I watched this show. Like you said, it was strange to see, like, why is Tito in the opening match and not wrestling Valentine? Because they were feuding. In fact, Valentine had hurt Tito's leg with the figure four in the build up to this and executioner even went after the leg in the brief match they had and talked about it in his pre-match interview. He was going to go after the leg because he knew the leg was injured. I think what it led to, if I understand my, my history right, Tito did eventually beat Valentine for the title. He did. And he then did. it's what led to Savage winning the title in Tito. That was probably just setting up Tito being the transitional champion between two heels. Right. Gotcha. But it was very strange to see that. I don't want to talk about a fall from grace. But on these big shows, we've talked about before, your your pay was commensurate with your placement on the card. Because the higher up you're on the card, the more the promoter put money behind you to go out and do PR work to build the house. And you were considered, and rightfully so in most cases, as the person that sold the house. So how did it feel for Ricky Steamboat, arguably the, the greatest pure baby face of all time? arguably one of the greatest technical wrestlers of all time and probably what top two or three technical wrestlers of that era without question. Absolutely. Um, yeah. One of the best bodies ever in the business who is legitimately in the semi main event of both the first two starcades winding up in the third match in the first WrestleMania. That's kind of a, right. a fall, isn't it? Especially since uh, <laughs> you look at some of the shows that happened on MSG after that. I don't know yeah. if it was something planned. What we know of Tito's tag team success in WWE and sure. Steamboat having tag team success before this, there are actually events, and I think they're in the Hidden Gems area on the WWE Network. There's tag team matches of Tito and Ricky teaming up. Right. And I'm like, holy crap, that's, that that team prints that, money. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's like the ultimate white meat babyface team, isn't it? Right. Right. I don't know what happened because obviously there was strike force and stuff like that, but I'm like, Tito and Ricky is a tag team? I'm in. You got two good-looking guys with ethnic backgrounds so they can appeal to white and non-white audiences, both with good builds, both very technically sound. The only thing they didn't have is that neither one of them were a great promo. I think Tito was probably a little bit better than Ricky, but right, right. neither one but of their promos were bad. bad. Promos, no. They were yeah. passable promos. They were passable promos. That, you're right. That Especially in that era, that prints money. I, I think it was Gorilla Monsoon that said it because the, the announced team for the show uh, for those of you who haven't watched it recently is uh, Jesse the Body Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon which is an outstanding I mean it's two oh, yeah. best announcers of all time but it was odd in, in watching it how Jesse kept referring to Gorilla as Gino yeah, I, I never understood that I, I'm like who's Gino and well, Gino, was, Gino is, is Gorilla's real name. Is Gino right. Morella was his real name. Which I was like, is he breaking kayfabe? Or, or did the fans know in that territory at that time that his real name was Gino? Because obviously his, the name on his birth certificate was not Gorilla. We know this. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I don't know. It was just kind of, it was one of those, well, that's odd. And it, it wasn't like he did it one time and said, oh, I, I messed up. He did it several times during the show. 
But I think but, it was Gorilla that announced that Steamboat had been tagging some with Jimmy Snuka. So I wonder if they brought Steamboat in, maybe wanting him to be a tag team guy. And and with not knowing what to do with Snuka and Snuka having the issues that we just talked about a little few minutes ago. Remember, part of the reason that Steamboat and Mark Youngblood broke up down here was Steamboat was tired of babysitting Mark Youngblood because he had issues too, you know? Mm-hmm. Or not, uh, um, sorry, not Mark, it was Jay, Jay Youngblood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, well, both of them had problems, but I mean, Ricky's <laughs> been pretty honest. He had he had issues babysitting him. And you, if you know anything about Steamboat, he's a pretty clean living guy. You know, he'll have a beer or a, a drink or a cocktail, but never is into drugs, never was a heavy drinker. I'm just speculating. You think maybe that was what it was, that, that Snooka's star was falling, but he, but Vince still saw drawing potential. So he thought, well, I'll bring in a guy who would has a good – I mean, it makes sense. Guy's from Hawaii. Well, at least he's built from Hawaii. And a guy from the islands, put him together. He's got a history of being able to be a successful tag team wrestler who can babysit a partner who has some issues. You see where I'm, where my logic's going there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But like I said, though, think about it. He was the semi-main event, the first two Starcades. The first one, he it was him and Youngblood against the Briscoes, and in my opinion, one of the greatest tag team matches of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, he was in a, a $10,000 challenge match against Tully Blanchard for the TV title in the semi-main at, at, at Starcade 84. Which That one never made sense to me because you already had the million-dollar challenge where Dusty put up a half a million, Ric Flair put up a half a million, and the winner was going to get the million dollars. Winner take all. I know it wasn't 10, but it wasn't 10, that was 25,000. So why is your semi-main event for money too? That didn't make any sense. I thought that was, I was like, who booked that? <laughs> I know it was Dusty, but I'm still like, who booked that? And on a side note, I <laughs> was privileged enough that I was able to find the original satellite broadcast of Starcade 84. And Dusty comes to the ring to Purple Rain, which makes no sense to me. Right. But, uh, you know, Dusty, I, hey, he can, Dusty can come to the ring whatever the hell he wants. But it's Because it's, it, it's the fall of 1984, and the biggest movie that summer was Purple Rain. So right, now right. you know why he came out of that song. <laughs> the one I always enjoyed him call, coming out to, he came out to later in his time here in the Carolinas, was Can't Judge a Book by its cover, uh, the David Allen Coe version, because David Allen Coe and him were friends. And David mm-hmm. Allen Coe actually did some live concerts during the intermission of some of the great American bashes in that era for Crockett, but I digress. So did Waylon Jennings too, for that matter. And you wonder why I love Crockett so much if you know my <laughs> love of Waylon Jennings. But <laughs> anyway, I thought about that as I was watching, I'm going, man, and I love Ricky Steamboat. You know that I, I, I I'm a huge Ricky Steamboat oh, yeah. fan. Not only as a wrestler, I got to know Ricky some, he's a great man. He's a good guy. I have immense respect for Ricky Steamboat. I'm like, how could you take a guy who's a legitimately a semi-main eventer and make him a third match card on the card guy. That to me seemed like seemed like a waste of talent. And I think the reaction he got from the crowd kind of justified that. What I said, just Vince's crowd really. Is Ricky Steamboat not ever been not over anywhere he went? And as we talk about, is why I brought up Ricky and Tito being in a tag team. They were career baby faces. We we talked yep. before about unless your name is Tito Santana or Ricky Steamboat, the crowd is eventually going to turn on you. Right, because everybody did. else, including including Ricky Morton, has turned at some point. I, you know, I don't know if Robert Gibson ever turned. Mm-hmm. He might be the other one. I don't like I could ever remember Robert having a, and because he was a baby face when he started out tagging with his brother, and he was yeah. a baby face the whole time yeah. he was a Ricky. They they had a heel run in TNA for a cup of coffee, but that was both of them together. 
Right. Know? And well, yeah, well, I guess that counts then. So I guess you can count Robert out <laughs> then too. Well, I mean, weren't Hoot, weren't Punky and Hoot somewhat heels in that little NWA run with Jeff Jarrett and, and Cornette in, in like mid nineties WWF too? Well, well, maybe, but at, at that period in TNA, and I, I don't like to talk about TNA and classic wrestling memories because it goes after the. The, uh, See, I'm know. talking. I'm talking pre-attitude era. You're talking after. <laughs> <laughs> right. We don't like to talk, you know, post-attitude era for for stuff. But it's just like I couldn't help but think that was a Vince Russo thing of, oh, let's turn the Rock and Roll Express heel. Yeah, in Tennessee, brilliant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. And that. And why? why I quote. This is wrestling related. I quote Kevin Sullivan's response to Jim Hurd when he had the idea. Of, of, of putting an earring on Ric Flair and cutting his hair and calling him Spartacus. Now, you have to understand, Kevin Sullivan is like the world's biggest baseball fan. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's a great idea, Jim. And while you're at it, why don't you go out to Yankee Field and take the number seven off Mickey Mantle while you're doing it? Okay. <laughs> it's the same type <laughs> thing, really? And it's, it's so like, like, if anybody ever had this idea in a, in, in, a, in a booking meeting, hey, let's turn Tito Santana and Ricky Steamboat healed, make them a tag team. I would have slapped the guy across the face, walked out, and said, I quit right there on the spot. I can't work for this company anymore. No. And we know Vince was not that stupid. But (laughs) it's kind of weird to see some of the lower card matches on this card for what we're talking about. Because here's JYD. He's in a high-profile match. He's in an intercontinental title match. But it's like, what, fourth or fifth on the card? Mm -hmm. And and so many other matches that just aren't title matches. Well, they didn't have that many titles back then. All you new school marks, y'all love belts too much. That's the problem. <laughs> well, and it, and it goes back to the Starcade analogy because we're talking title matches for other territories. So, yeah, I just yeah. defeated my own argument here. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, 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 I, I brought, I'll bring it, I brought it before. I'll bring it up again. You can't compare the Crockett stuff to the WWF in that regard simply because. Vince had his he had his he had his four belts. He had the women's title, the men's title, the intercontinental tag. That was it. Mm-hmm. You're right. One, you had the blending of all these different territories. But the way Jim Crockett went about merging and going nationally was buying out all these territories and then not getting rid of the regional title that went with the territory. So when in the early days of Crockett big shows, there might be it might every match might be a title match because there for nine, there's 19 different regional titles that are up at stake, and really <laughs> the only ones that matter are the TV, the US, the tag, and the world. Right? Same as Vince, four belts. I mean, my favorite Starcade, my favorite wrestling show of all times is Starcade '85, and the opening matches for the Mid Atlantic Championship between Sam Houston and Crusher Khrushchev. It's for a title, <laughs> for goodness sakes. It's a regional title, but yeah, right. I mean, it was it odd to you too that this show was only like what a little like two hours and some change, a little over two hours long. Something like, and and one of the questions I was going to bow out with, you know, as we come to a close here, do you know what match was the longest? But I just watched it yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say either the women's match or JYD and Greg Valentine. The longest match on WrestleMania 1 is the main event, Hogan and T versus Piper and Orndorff, at 13 minutes and 37 seconds. That's the longest match on the entire show. Now, I reiterate something I've said many times before. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about philosophy in the southern territories as opposed to the northeast and how certain things wouldn't work back in the territory days because of the fans being conditioned over years and years of seeing it. That was typical of the WWE. You know, a 13, 15-minute match was a main event. A main event down here was 
a 90 minute Broadway with Harley race and Jack Briscoe bleeding like stuck pigs until both of them are going to class big difference, you know? And maybe it fits with the MTV crowd because MTV is kind of credited with being the whole get things over quickly, quickly, quickly and move on. Right. Crash TV is Corbin call, you know, Mm -hmm. throw it up against the wall. What sticks sticks. But I just thought that was strange. And especially in light of today of how long is, is WrestleMania nowadays? Six hours. So in light of that, two hours, I think most of us as fans would were probably more on the two-hour side. <laughs> you know, I think that also plays into what you brought up at the top of the episode, that Vince has really branded WrestleMania to where it is now. But I, I think you brought this up at the top of the episode, Seth. Vince has done an amazing job at branding WrestleMania as the it event in wrestling annually. Mm-hmm. And it has become the Super Bowl, much like the Super Bowl, where it's not just the event itself. It's literally a whole weekend of events surrounding it. Right. And, and you can see the, the the beginnings of that in the first WrestleMania. You can definitely see the Vince's idea of the merging of entertainment and wrestling worlds. Because on top of Mr. T and Cindy Lauper's involvement, we didn't mention you had the Rockettes and Liberace out there. And wasn't it Bob Uecker that came out and was a guest ring announcer, I believe, for um, the matches? Uh, it was the was uh, it? it was the Yankees manager, Bob Uecker. I know it was at mm. WrestleMania three, and I think it was back oh, it at was, WrestleMania it, four. It, yeah. I know it was. It was, it was Billy yeah, Martin. It was, it was Billy Martin. Yeah. Which there's that famous story we talked about on our Gene Okerlund tribute show, where when Gene went out to do an interview with him in, in California as build up for this. Billy Martin was tanked. He was like nine <laughs> sheets to win. And yet somehow they didn't have time to let him sober up. Dean Okerlund led him through a brilliant interview where you'd have had no idea that Billy Martin was drunk. <laughs> That's how great Dean <laughs> Okerlund was, right? <laughs> but yeah, so this we're seeing the merging of the entertainment world start with this. And well, how many years later would he tell the governor of New Jersey, hey, this is all sports entertainment. It's not right. It's not, you know, but I digress. Right. Other little things I noticed too, and Yumi had talked about this. I think you can see in this show how much Vince learned about how to do these live broadcasts from the mistakes he made in this show. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that was most glaring to me was they had Lord Al Hayes, who once again was another one that was tough for me as a guy from here in the South, because Vince instantly cast Lord Al Hayes as a baby face announcer. He was essentially Vince's Ed McMahon on Tuesday Night Titans. He was a despised and hated heel manager for years in the South. You knew that, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. And he was a manager <laughs> for uh, Jimmy Valiant as a heel, as King James yes. or something like that. Yes. Uh, he managed the Bolos, which was the first gimmick Bill Eadie had before Mass Superstar. I mean, he was this hated heel manager down here. And then when I first, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years and I watched Vince's TV as a fan and it's like, why are people cheering for Lord Alfred Hayes? He's a bad guy. You know, that was confusing <laughs> to me. Uh, but but you know, he anyway, Lord Al Hayes would be kind of talking about the matches coming up, standing at, at ringside, and you would literally see the guys whose match is just in walking past him back in the locker room and the guys walking out to the ring for the next match. And you would never see anything like that today, would you? Right. And And to be fair, this was the days before – the big intro where the music hits and you got the Titan Tron right. and all that. So right, the only guys that even had interest music in this era, and it was only for special occasions. You know, Hogan would come out to Eye of the Tiger, Piper would come out to the bagpipes, but that was it. You know, and I think I think Wendy Wendy was coming out to girls just want to have fun in that area too, wasn't she? 
Right. But uh, anyway, and another odd thing is they would cut to Gene Okerlund in the back every match in a pre-match interview, which also doesn't happen nowadays. And if Vince does do a lot of interviews, they're always pre-records, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're stuff on VTR and here they're doing them live at the show, which in, in defense, I mean, Tony Giovanni was pretty much doing the same thing at the first Starcade, as we talked about in that episode right. in his debut with the company, but there they would interview the baby face first. And then Gene would interview the heel. And it was quite obvious that they were standing in the same room while they were cutting these promos on each other. And it's like, <laughs> you're going to let a guy talk about you like that, not slap the taste out of his mouth right there for, for, before the match starts. But it was a bit kayfabe breaking, you know, for an era when kayfabe was real. Because once again, I bring up the fact that just months leading up to this, uh, from the same company, you have David Schultz slapping the piss out of John Stossel and Hulk Hogan choking out Richard Belzel both on national television. So it wasn't like Kayfay didn't exist at the time in the company. It's just, I don't know. What, what stuck out to you is stuff that he changed, that you could see improved on as time went on, that wasn't here. A lot of things with camera shots, especially with the match, because a lot of times when you see an impact, especially if it's in the corner buckle, or mm-hmm. uh, a, a big kick or something like that. They switch camera shots. And mm-hmm. what, like you said, they try to, if they're going to do interviews, they, they make it more obvious that they're in different places in the building. And just the whole thing of not making it look like everybody's in the same place at the same time, like you said. Right. Like said. Well, two other things. They're small. But but now that I've um, once I mentioned this, I know any of our listeners that go out and watch it, they're not going to be able to un, un, unhear it. One, my God, how much bigger was the ring and looser were those real rope ropes Vince used back then than what like Crockett had at the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the first thing. I mean, it's uh, trust me as a guy who's been in several different sizes of rings many many times, it is painfully obvious that's a twenty two by twenty two ring and not the eighteen by eighteen or sixteen by sixteen that the Crockett's used and Georgia Championship and Bill Watts. And it's very obvious those are real rope ropes that are not very tight. But the other thing, which you'll never see, and Vince, Vince, I can say Vince started getting away from this almost immediately after this WrestleMania, this first WrestleMania, was lighting the whole crowd, the whole live crowd. Mm-hmm. This was much like your old Crockett, Georgia Championship, Bill Watts, AWA, where the only people you could see in the crowd were the first couple of rows, and it was only because it was light spilling off of the spotlight over the oh, top yes. of the middle. Yes. Yeah, I've had and, a few discussions with other people, and obviously I'm putting that title, I'm putting that lightly, about mm-hmm. some of the WCW shows in the 90s, and people talking about, oh, there's nobody in there. And I was just like, and I look up the attendance, it's like, yeah, there's 15,000 people there. Okay, if you want to complain they're not lit well, that's a fair argument, but, right. you know, <laughs> there were a lot of people there. I think I've explained it before, but let, let me let me do it here because this is a good this is a good segue for that. You must remember, wrestling at this point in time was just beginning to become mainstream because of what we're talking about with WrestleMania, with the infusion of mainstream stars outside of the wrestling business, with the involvement of entities like the MTV. Wrestling is becoming mainstream. Vince realizes this and realizes this is a se- an area where he can separate himself from the wrestling territory. From Crockett, from Vern, from Bill Watts, mm-hmm. from Eddie Graham. And one of the biggest ways he can do that is he's trying to sell this idea of family entertainment. Bring the whole family to the matches. There's nothing that's going to offend the kids or the grandmas and the grandpas. And one of the best ways he can do that, visually speaking, light the crowd. Get away from what they're doing and light the entire crowd, the 
turn the house lights on so that the television audience sees families and people in the crowd having a good time. Mm-hmm. And it's not this seedy, smoke-filled arenas with guys chewing on cigars, you know, which I always never understood that stigma uh, and how wrestling evolved to that public perception, considering we've talked about in the 50s and the early days of the Dumont Network, which is for wrestling on television, the days of, you know, Luthez's prime and Freddie Blassie and his prime and, and George, wrestling from the chase was this ballroom in a fancy hotel in St. Louis. And it's, it's guys in, in, in shirt and tie and sports coat and ladies in dresses and heels sitting there watching wrestling. And the same TV that you were getting from the Olympia in L.A., which is, of course, where Gordon George and Freddie Blassie became stars, same thing, out of the crowd. It looks like a, a couple going out on a nice date, a fancier date. Now, And I understand times are different and people dressed a little nicer back in the 50s than they did in the 80s. But my point being, I don't ever understand how from the 50s to the 80s we got to that perception, that there was this 25-year perception that wrestling was this – you know, do not get me wrong. I grew up going to Crockett house shows. I saw the guys in the bib overalls, the trucker caps and the bro gains on sitting in the sitting ringside, you know, with their spitting their spitting their tobacco juice into the into the cups. Those guys, those fans existed. OK, but it wasn't the ball. It was the whole crowd. You know, I was a middle school age kid. I was going to shows wearing the same thing I wore to school, which in that era was. Pretty typical of the 80s. A members only jacket, an IZOD shirt, a pair of nice jeans, and cowboy boots or tennis shoes. So I don't know where that perception came, but Vince, to his credit, did some with his bookie style, but also, like I said, the way he lighted ringside changed that perception. And it was it was a necessity. He realized if I'm going to appeal to a larger demographic, I must do this. I bet you, not knowing Vince McMahon, but have heard so much about his personality, I can bet you, I can just see it in my mind. Him sitting watching the tape of the original WrestleMania going, this looks like crap, pal. We're going to light this up. Can yeah. you not kind of imagine that yourself? Realizing oh, yeah. this will look so – I mean, he's, he's old and quite still at Massacre Ground. But, I mean, there were no empty seats at ringside, that's for sure. You know, Right, right, absolutely. For all of the crap that Vince McMahon gets, and you can have your opinion on Vince McMahon, you're entitled to that. It's free country. One thing you cannot say about Vince McMahon – is he's not a gutsy promoter and marketer who was willing to take chances. Because this show shows you how much he was willing to take a chance. Yes, the Crockett's was something similar, but it wasn't the same. And the fact that it's a known fact, between the million dollars he got for selling selling the time slot to the Crockett's, he put up everything he had for this show. He put everything he owned up, up as collateral to get loans to pay the show. It was that big a gamble. I don't think that can be underscored. Absolutely. And 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 Vince McMahon, whether you like him or not, he didn't get where he is by being lazy. The man is a workaholic. Right. He is willing to take risks. And as you said, as, as we were prepping for the show, he's the first guy to the building and the last guy to leave. Right. And really, when it comes down to it, to this day, Vince will still say it was a gamble. It was a gamble that paid off. Yes. But it was the biggest gamble he ever had in his life. And really, if I understand things correctly, it was a gamble for some of the wrestlers as well because a lot of those territories that Vince took them from, they said, you're never going to work here again if you work WrestleMania. 
yeah, somebody was told that, you know? Of course, that came on not to be true. But it, it, it's, it was a big risk for everybody. And it was also a risk. Another aspect you look at the risk for the wrestlers, besides being the fear of being blackballed for doing it by other territories, if Vince, this hadn't worked out for Vince, they were going to, they were, they, their paycheck were going to, even if they stayed with Vince, their paycheck was going to bop. I seem to recall even, uh, I think it was Pat Patterson or said, Vince told me, well, if this doesn't work out, we're both going to be looking for a job. Right. This is a good wrestling analogy. And it's not, it's not about WrestleMania, but I think it will give you a unique insight into for listeners that aren't in the business to what all the good promoters are. And it, it's, it's probably not possible for me to respect Terry Funk more than I already do. But hearing him give this interview actually made me respect Terry Funk more. And he was asked, what was his most proudest moment in his wrestling career? Now, we're talking about Terry Funk, legitimately a living legend. I think without question, no matter what you think about pro wrestling and what you like, almost everybody would, would agree Terry Funk is probably top 10, 15 of all time. You know, mm-hmm. For length of career, ability, promo, he's a former world champion. I mean, there's... He, he truly is one of the, the greatest stars in the history of our business. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind when his answer was when me and my brother and my dad were running Amarillo and they asked him why. And he brought up the fact that Amarillo was not a big territory. They had no big cities. And so because of that, they had a small crew. We only had about 15, 20 guys on the active roster, you know, and a handful of office people, camera guys, things like that. So maybe 30 employees total. But realizing the decisions they made on a day-to-day basis – meant whether 30 families starved or not was was the thing that that really struck home with him. He said, don't think I ever forgot that. And he said, I'm proud to say the entire time we ran the territory, none of those 30 people ever starved. We always made sure everybody got paid and everybody made a living. I think that's a unique insight into how wrestling promoters look at things. Don't think that – you can think Vince is blusterous as you want, and he is. Don't think Vince probably didn't have the same mindset going into WrestleMania. Yeah, I think you're right. And so we'll wind up with that. I mean, it definitely says something. You know, the, the longest match was 13 and a half minutes. There's a mm-hmm. lot of questionable things here, but you cannot deny <laughs> that WrestleMania was not successful. It was like a million people. I think not not, not even a million dollars. It was a million people. And I don't know what the uh, money was to, for, for the tickets for those, those closed-circuit viewings. But it was very mm-hmm. successful, and you know it, it launched everything to what the WWE is today. So I guess in closing, it's one of those things that I, I still say that if Vince didn't do this, somebody else would have. There eventually would have been this national expansion. It's just Vince was smart enough to do it first. I mean, is it fair to say that? Well, yeah, I think we went over that pretty clearly in our unpopular opinions episode a few episodes back. Mm-hmm. And it might have been Jim Crockett, might have been Bill Watts, it might have been somebody we've never even heard of. But you're right, it was going to happen. But Vince did what all successful businessmen do with WrestleMania. He truly rolled the dice to the biggest, through everything he had, went all in, and guess what? He rolled sevens. Geekville Radio. And there you go, folks. A story on how the original WrestleMania came to be, along with some comparisons to the original Starcade, which at that time was about a year and a half before. This is Geekville Radio for National Podcast Post Month, Day 7. You can find us at geekvilleradio.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to the podcast there or through the pod device of your choosing. We're all over 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. You can do a search for Geekville Radio and find all of our plethora of podcast channels. Give us a like, give us a review, let us know what we're doing well, let us know what we're not doing so well. I always say I appreciate feedback, especially when it's genuine. I'd rather read something that's genuinely negative than falsely positive, you might say. And of course, I can also be reached at Seth at GeekvilleRadio.com. We got day eight ahead of us for a Napod Pomo National Podcast Post Month. We'll have some exciting stuff up then as well. I think we'll be diving back into the Nostalgia Trip archives and talk the cartoon icon for more than 50 years, Scooby-Doo. So if you ever watch Scooby-Doo, this will be the show for you. And I'm a poet and don't know it. But anyway, that's next on the docket for Geekville Radio and National Podcast Post Month 2023. We'll talk to you folks then. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.